and welcome to Deep North. We're here today with staff writer Jelena Cirich on her piece, Nothing to Speak of, a look into Icelandic language education. Ministry of Culture and Education, or uh, Ministry of Culture and Trade. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, I'm a journalist from Iceland Review. I'm calling to inquire whether Icelandic language education for immigrants falls under this ministry. Hmm. Uh, give me a moment. Hi again. Uh, the ministry assignments are still being sorted, so I recommend you call back next week. I'm pretty sure that issue is being moved to the Ministry of Social Affairs and Labor, but check back next week. I made the previous phone call three months after a new government took office in Iceland. It had renamed the ministries and redefined their assignments. The issue of which ministry was responsible for ensuring that Icelandic language education was made accessible to the country's roughly 50,000 foreign residents, now 15% of the population, remained a big question mark. In 2012, foreign citizens made up 7% of Iceland's population. By 2021, that figure had more than doubled, to over 14%. Immigration is no less of a hot topic in Iceland than elsewhere, and many speculate about its effects on the economy, the nation, and the Icelandic language. But regardless of what those effects are, one thing is clear. Iceland needs immigrants. In a recent interview with Visir, Halldór Benjamin Thorbergsson, the CEO of the Icelandic Confederation of Enterprise, stated that Iceland would need 15,000 new workers over the next four years in order to meet demand on the labor market. Only 3,000 locals were expected to age into the market during that period, which means that the country would need to acquire an additional 12,000 workers from abroad. Halthor Benjamin made it clear that ensuring these workers was a question of maintaining economic prosperity and locals' quality of life. Successfully receiving 12,000 immigrants over four years would require a monumental effort on the part of the government, which needed to begin, quote, no later than now, Halthor Benjamin stated. He also said, A part of that, notabene, is to help people adjust to the society with Icelandic language education and the like. Icelandic Exercise 2. Asking Questions. Ministry of Social Affairs and Labor. Yes, hi. Uh, I'm calling from Iceland Review. I've been told that Icelandic education for immigrants is being moved to this ministry. Can you confirm that's the case? The typical procedure for such inquiries is to send an email to the ministry. I see. So... You can't confirm whether it falls under this ministry. Uh, you can just send an email. Right. Thank you. The government of Iceland does not provide any free Icelandic language classes for immigrants. The structured learning available to the country's newest residents largely falls into two categories. On the one hand, there are free conversational classes provided by community organizations such as the Red Cross, religious groups, and the Reykjavik Public Library. One immigrant related to me how Icelandic classes offered by one Christian group always started with a prayer. On the other hand, there are paid courses offered by privately operated schools. An eight-week course will set you back around 50,000 Icelandic kronut, which is around 375 US dollars or 340 euro. About one-sixth of the minimum monthly salary pre-tax. Those who are union members can usually get 75% of this fee reimbursed. 
Those who are not must pay out of pocket. Icelandic Exercise 3. Reading. February 17, 2022. 2.59 p.m. To Jelena Cirich. From Ministry of Social Affairs and Labor. Subject. Inquiry. Icelandic Education for Foreigners. Case Reference. FRN 22020116. Hello. Yes, Icelandic teaching for foreigners falls under the Ministry of Social Affairs and Labor, except for Icelandic as a second language teaching in upper secondary schools. Regards, Ministry of Social Affairs and Labor. I don't get the point. I just don't understand. No one has contacted us or tried to explain to us how moving this issue to the Social Affairs and Labor Ministry helps immigrants learn Icelandic or have more access to the language, Hjalti Omarsson tells me. Hjalti is the CEO of Retor Freidsla, an Icelandic as a Second Language, or ISL, school in the Reykjavik area, founded in 2008. While Retor receives some public funding, it only accounts for 35-40% to 40% of the school's operating costs. The rest comes from students or their unions. We also work with a lot of companies that buy Icelandic courses for their employees, Hjalti tells me. He says the public grants available to workplaces for providing ISL classes are one of the things that got the school through the worst of the pandemic. But when it comes to public funding, there's not enough. The amount of grant money available has not risen since 2009. And whether your company has 10 employees or 100, the amount you can apply for is the same. Workplaces complain to us that they exhaust their grant money very quickly. Retur's staff has done their best to advocate for more government funding and attention to ISL teaching. But in Hjalti's words, communication with the government has been like the weather. Sometimes good, sometimes not at all. We've pointed out that the funding is there. Funding that immigrants themselves create by working on the Icelandic labor market. I don't understand why it isn't possible to invest those funds back into immigrants, increase access to the language, and make it easier for people to learn. Reports from the Directorate of Labor have shown that a lack of Icelandic knowledge is a barrier for immigrants when it comes to getting their education and training recognized, meaning they miss out on jobs and the labor market on skilled workers. Retor's meetings with the former Minister of Education and Culture, Lilja Alfredsdottir, ended with many promises, but no action. I sincerely hope something will be done, because we, in our role, we can only do this for so long until we say, okay, nothing is changing, the public institutions aren't making improvements. Icelandic Exercise 4. Parts of Speech What the Icelandic government needs to do in order to improve access to Icelandic language education for immigrants is establish a clear policy, says Hjalti. We need to receive immigrants differently than we receive tourists. When people move to the country, they should be informed that they are expected to learn the language, so there isn't this weird in-between place where many people end up, sometimes for decades, where they're not sure if they need to learn Icelandic or not, until they've gotten so old that it becomes even more difficult. That policy needs to be accompanied by funding, so that people who are paying taxes in our society can attend language classes. They need to be made accessible. I feel that it's very short-sighted of the Icelandic government to do nothing, whether you look at it from the perspective of the language or the people who need the language as a tool, because it'll slowly create not even just two nations in this country, but several. It's the immigrants themselves that bear the brunt of this lack of government action, 
Huffley points out. Like people in service jobs. Icelanders get annoyed at them if they don't speak Icelandic. At the same time, those people have no access to Icelandic classes and no motivation to attend. If there is no policy and no funding to speak of, then people choose to do nothing. And that is the only option they have today, except for very, very determined or hard-working people. And I don't know if it's even fair to say that, because people's circumstances vary so much. I find it very unfair how much perseverance it takes to learn Icelandic. Act number 61, 2011. On the status of the Icelandic language and Icelandic sign language. Excerpt. Article 2. The Icelandic language. The national language is the common language of the people. The government shall ensure that it can be used in all areas of Icelandic society. Everyone residing in this country shall have the opportunity to learn and use Icelandic for general participation in Icelandic national life, as further prescribed in special legislation. Article 5. Language Policy. The state and municipalities are responsible for preserving and strengthening the Icelandic language and shall ensure that it is used. Besides free sessions offered by charities and costly private schools, a third, though less common, route does exist for those who want to learn Icelandic as a second language. The University of Iceland offers a one-year Icelandic as a second language diploma program, as well as a three-year Icelandic as a second language degree, of which Lina Halberg is a recent graduate. Lina began learning Icelandic abroad. Then, after moving to Iceland in 2016, she completed all of the ISL courses on offer at a respected private school, as well as attending free sessions at a variety of community organizations. Some were good, but most did not help her advance beyond a beginner level. In the end, I thought, okay, there's nothing more I can learn here, so I just ended up applying to the university, Lina says. The Icelandic government has not conducted research on how many hours of instruction are required for a second language learner to become proficient in Icelandic. The United States Foreign Service Institute, however, has. It concluded that it usually takes around 44 weeks, or 1,100 hours of instruction, for English speakers to achieve professional working proficiency in Icelandic. The Icelandic government's upper secondary school curriculum for Icelandic as a second language accounts for only 540 hours to achieve a similar level of proficiency. Lina contacted Icelandic language schools across the country to determine how many hours of instruction they offered in total, when all their courses were added together. None of them surpassed 360 hours. Lina also points out that the government has not made teaching materials that cover everything outlined by the curriculum. One response I often get as to why there aren't courses at higher levels is usually, people don't want to do them. I don't think people don't want to. They are not able to. They're tired. They don't have the money. They don't have access to childcare, Lina says. Some schools, like Retor, simply say that funding does not allow for them to offer courses at higher levels which often require additional work to create teaching material. She points out that the government has suggested requiring Icelandic proficiency within certain professions, like her own, dentistry. Yet, there are obstacles to reaching that proficiency. I'm not against requiring people to have a certain level of Icelandic to get a license as a dentist, for example, but then there should be a book for them. Can you imagine being required to do a driving test and there's no book to study for it? 
Lena had to scale back her working hours in order to be able to attend the ISL program at the University of Iceland. Everyone is saying it's way too expensive to provide lessons for immigrants. But I chose to work 50% so that I could learn Icelandic. And when I'm not working, we don't hire a dental assistant. So for three and a half years, we didn't hire an assistant, I wasn't working, that's money that is not being made. And if I'm not working, I'm not using instruments, we're buying less, the dentist has less work. So it's a loss for the economy and the government. Attending the university's ISL program made Lina more aware of the lack of materials available for learning Icelandic, especially material that was tailored to second language learners. I was maybe complaining about it a little bit too much. I had taught a grammar lesson and prepared a second one for one of my courses, and then eventually the instructor told me, this is really good. Why don't you write this book that you say is missing? And I thought, why not? I can't be complaining all the time and not doing anything about it. Lena then began to put together a grammar book tailored to immigrants as her final project in her program. While it's nearly ready for publication, she's faced yet more obstacles in getting her book out there, primarily in finding funding for the cover design and proofreading. I'm learning a lot writing the book, so if I don't get paid, at least I'm learning. But I need someone to design the cover, and I will have to pay an Icelander to go over it in the end. And all of that costs money. When she searched for grants that she could apply for, there was little to be found. I never fulfilled the requirements. You either had to be an organization, or work for the university, or the project needed to be a research project. Or, if it could be a book, then the material had to be for children. The government can pay 9 billion Icelandic kronur, 68.2 million US dollars, or 62.1 million euro, for COVID testing over two years. But you can't get 1.2 million Icelandic krona for a book. It's ridiculous. Facing a lack of government support, Lina points out that many ISL schools have resorted to creating their own teaching material for more advanced levels, at their own expense. The material that's available isn't good enough, so everyone has to do their own thing, Lina says. Icelandic Language Committee Resolution on the Status of the Icelandic Language 2020 Excerpt It is important to keep in mind that it is an issue of accessibility and quality for Icelandic to be used as a rule, as Icelandic speakers' mastery of foreign languages is quite varied, and constant use of English can lead to a part of society being excluded from certain areas. Good Icelandic language education is also an important issue for equality, among other things, to prevent a gap forming between generations and social groups. Icelandic Exercise 5 Comprehension March 2022 An Icelandic TikToker posts videos of himself printing and distributing flyers in mailboxes and on windshields in Reykjavik's Vestabær neighborhood. The flyers read, Immigrants are killing Europeans. The immigration of people from Asia and Africa will lead to the extinction of Icelanders. No borders and anti-racists want to see white people become extinct. Immigration, racial mixing, and democracy are tools used to eliminate Icelanders and Europeans. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. It would take time to unravel decades of a lack of policy, Hjalti observes, saying the government's inaction has influenced the nation's attitude toward the language. When Icelanders meet people who speak English, they just speak English. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. 
There are more than enough people who are interested in creating good ISL material, creating better conditions for learning. There is specialized knowledge, but there needs to be the will to do so. The government needs to have the will to do it, the interest, instead of willingly preventing people from being able to build the life they want here, using the Icelandic language as a tool. Part of the change that is necessary, according to Hjalti, is to let go of the ideal of perfect grammar and accept that Icelandic can come in many forms. I think we need to normalize the fact that immigrants don't speak perfect Icelandic. We want, first of all, to give people a chance to approach the language and to be able to use it. That's what this is about. When people start to feel good about just using Icelandic, even if they're not saying everything perfectly, that's when the ball gets rolling. While many Icelandic language purists see any foreign loanwords or imperfect grammar as a threat to the survival of Icelandic, Hjalti says this attitude only hurts the language. Icelandic is incredibly adaptable. I think the best proof of that is that it's still around. And I love how it has developed and changed through the years. I think it's okay for there to be different versions of Icelandic, and for some people to speak well and others to speak poorly. I think that's something that Icelanders have to learn to accept. The Minister of Social Affairs and Labour did not grant Iceland Review an interview during the writing of this article. After several emails and phone calls, the Ministry answered our questions by email, citing the 2021 Government Agreement and a Parliamentary Resolution from 2018-2019 that both emphasize a need to review Icelandic language education for immigrants and its funding, much like previous reports and agreements. Whether this government will differ from previous ones and follow through on promises made remains to be seen. Well, thank you for that, Jelena. You're very welcome. So just to be clear, uh, which ministry or ministries are responsible now for Icelandic education for immigrants? So the Ministry of Social Affairs and Labor is responsible uh, technically for Icelandic education for immigrants, but the Ministry of Education and Children is responsible for Icelandic education for immigrants in upper secondary schools. And then the Ministry of Higher Education, Science and Innovation is responsible for Icelandic education for immigrants at the University of Iceland. Uh, And it's the Ministry of Culture and Trade that's responsible for Icelandic language policy in general. So we have four different ministries that oversee this one issue. Yes, and this seems to be a pretty classic example of, you know, in some sense, it doesn't matter who's responsible for doing the job as long as it's being done and it's being done well. Uh, But certainly this kind of ministerial confusion uh, has you know, maybe led to the sense of, you know, people don't actually maybe know what their job actually entitles, which is kind of a strange position. Yeah, I think uh, the fact that the issue is split between four ministries just reflects its position on the list of priorities of the government. Um, I mean, we have a Ministry of Health because that's a priority, as it should be, uh, and we can't really imagine having you know, hospitals under one ministry and health clinics under another one and cancer care under a third one. Uh, That wouldn't really make sense to us. Um, And it wouldn't show a prioritizing of of healthcare. So I think the fact that Icelandic language education, especially for immigrants, is is split up under so many ministries, it kind of shows that it's not a 
an issue that the government is addressing holistically. So you wrote this article about a year ago, and I think it's fair to say that it played a pretty central role, uh, actually, in the ongoing conversation about Icelandic education for immigrants. Uh, what can you tell us has changed in the meantime? Uh, yeah, I think this is a conversation that pops up time and again, and you know, there's a lot of, of kind of repetition maybe in, in the things that aren't working and things that could be better. Uh, but during the past year, since this article was published, the government has actually established a committee that is an inter-ministerial committee. So all of these four ministries that are responsible for different facets of Icelandic language policy now have a committee where they meet all together to talk about it. So hopefully this increased collaboration between the ministries will provide kind of an increased emphasis on Icelandic language education and maybe better coordination between the ministries on, on how they manage this issue. But we've yet to see. Of course, it's a step in the right direction, um, but can you talk a little bit about anything that's kind of changed kind of concretely, like on the ground? Uh, at this point, I don't think there have been any concrete changes on the ground. Uh, I mean, the the education system is, is still what it's been for many years uh, in terms of that it's all outsourced from the government to the private market. I mean, it's private schools that uh, you know immigrants pay to to attend language courses and and they're the ones that kind of run all the all the education unless we're talking about the University of Iceland which of course is is publicly funded um, in part so I mean it seems like systemically there's still a lot of emphasis on kind of immigrants accessing courses through their union and getting grants through their union and, and the courses are usually run by private institutions so um, I mean, Maybe that's a system we want to keep going, but I think there are many things within that system that, that could be done better to increase accessibility, or, or we could decide, you know, the government could decide maybe this isn't the best way um, to be making Icelandic accessible. I think that a lot of people know at a kind of abstract level um, that Icelandic is a difficult language to learn. Um, of course, not everybody is a linguist, but... Uh, you know, maybe you could just briefly outline what are actually some of the special features of the Icelandic language that, and, and you know, kind of beyond um, the social and kind of like like policy issues that you've outlined here. You know, what what can you kind of say about the Icelandic language itself that kind of makes uh, that presents special difficulties? Um. I, I kind of always argue this point when people say it, actually, because I don't think the Icelandic language is necessarily harder than other languages. Uh, but of course, you know, I've, I've spoken to other immigrants who've learned it, uh, like me, and, and who disagree with that. Um, I always feel that the language policy, the lack of access, the lack of the ability to practice, that that, that is the thing that, that makes it really hard. It's kind of the social context and, and this lack of support. Um, and when it comes to the language itself, I mean, there there are complicated aspects of its grammar, for sure. Again, it depends what your mother tongue is and, and what other languages or language you might speak, you know, what direction you're kind of approaching Icelandic from. Um, so Icelandic has, for example, cases, which means that nouns change depending on uh, their position within a sentence, whether they're the subject or the object and so on. So each noun that you learn, it, it, it has not only... A gender, but it also has many different forms that you have to know, you know, how to apply in the right uh, way. 
but I mean, my mother tongue, Serbian, has seven cases. Uh, Icelandic has four, so you know it's a simplification <laughs> in comparison. Um, so you know, it really depends what language you're coming from, and I think uh, Icelanders often often believe that many of the grammatical features of Icelandic are unique to Icelandic. Yes, but that is really, I think, never the case. And and Edigur Rakvaldson, the Icelandic linguist, he's he's said this many times. So um, I mean, this isn't just my opinion coming coming uh, coming hear about that but like most of the kind of features that are challenging about Icelandic grammar they also exist in other languages something that I've perceived is maybe a certain attitude that uh, because the Icelandic language you know does have some of these special features and it is unique in some ways sometimes I think though that this has also led to a kind of unproductive attitude where Icelanders themselves kind of accept that this is like an impossible language for outsiders to learn or something. And then, you know, there's like a very kind of clear line drawn between like a linguistic community and its inside and its outside. And so, you know, sometimes I think that this kind of mystifying of the Icelandic language is actually really counterproductive because it kind of builds up this myth that, you know, I mean, basically you have to be born into it. Uh, and then that logic, um, you know, it leads to some of these unfortunate things like uh, these, you know, uh, racist flyers that you're talking about, actually, because then um, if you basically have to be born into this language, then it becomes this, you know, kind of ethnic thing almost, which I think is really unfortunate. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, I I completely agree with that because this attitude, and it's not necessarily a conscious attitude. I mean, people grow up, Icelanders grow up, uh, you know, learning a lot about their own language. There's a huge emphasis on the language in education, and it's very closely connected to national identity, uh, more so than in other countries, maybe. And, I mean, this attitude that, you know, Icelandic is really complex and Icelandic is really difficult to learn is not necessarily something that people adopt consciously, and they're not necessarily consciously putting up a barrier, but but they do that nevertheless. Um, with this attitude, I mean, if someone tells you, oh, Icelandic is impossible to learn, it's really hard to learn, then, I mean, that is just one additional barrier that you have to overcome. You know? So practically speaking, what would be some ways to provide, you know, just more resources and times and places for people to practice Icelandic? So the way that the current system works is we've got a lot of privately run schools that are all working in their own corner and some of them are doing incredible I mean most of them if not all of them are doing incredible work and and uh, creating material uh, for teaching Icelandic for example but because they're all independent privately run schools that are all competing for the same very limited grant money they don't have any incentive to work together so what happens is that often each school is putting in a lot of effort and resources into creating teaching material for their students uh, when there is maybe some overlap. Now, I'm not saying that we should only have one t- Icelandic teaching textbook. Of course, there's there's uh, strength in having many different approaches and a d- diversity of materials. Uh, but I think many of the resources and a lot of the energy could be pooled together if there was a better overarching structure probably provided by the government. Sure. And I mean, I can certainly see it being maybe counterproductive in some ways to 
have a lot of the teaching material, um, you know, basically being proprietary, maybe. You know, I mean, uh, from my experience uh, in language learning as well, you know, I mean, there are many other... Um, you know, I mean, like, like for instance, uh, in Germany, there's the Goethe Institute, which is a kind of national institute for the promotion of the German language. They are very good at producing material for language learners. Of course, that is not the be-all and end-all of German language education, but it is, you know, a free resources. Uh, it, it is a free resource that uh, you know classrooms throughout the world use. Um, and you know, I mean, it's kind of curious to me that for a nation like Iceland. Um, you know, where language is so central to identity and history um, that there isn't, yeah, you know, something kind of comparable to like an Icelandic Goethe Institute or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the discussion surrounding the Icelandic language, it's, it's very emotionally charged because the language is so closely connected to national identity. Uh, and I mean, I would say it's, it's, it's emotional on the on the side of immigrants as well, you could say, because, you know, there isn't much practical reason to, to necessarily learn Icelandic. I mean, we learn it because we want to learn it. And I think that's also a, a key to remember. But, um, you know, when the discussion becomes very emotionally charged, we kind of forget to look at the facts and, and the resources. I mean, we know how to make this education more accessible. Uh, we know how to improve its quality. There are tons of incredibly... Uh, experienced teachers and pedagogues out there um, that can improve the system, and they've been trying to, but they've been facing barriers, systemic barriers, uh, whether that's from you know the lack of government policy or or just other societal structural issues. And so, I, I guess to you know end it on a more positive note, like the knowledge is there, uh, we know how this can be done, and it's just a question of you know will and and sitting down and and doing it. Yeah, um, I guess my mind is kind of just drifting to uh, this example because just Germany. Um, but, you know, so there's kind of a very well-known sociological phenomenon uh, of kind of guest workers in Germany where in the 70s and the 80s uh, to kind of bolster the economy. Uh, Germany basically invited uh, a lot of people from Turkey uh, to come and work in Germany. And the idea was was that, you know, they would kind of fuel the economy and then leave. Uh, and, of course, it's never quite as simple as that. People put down roots. They have families. Um, and, unfortunately, because there wasn't really a way to receive these people, uh, you have, you know, to this day, large communities that are more or less unintegrated. Um, and it has caused social problems. And... You know, I mean, again, to kind of think of like maybe unhelpful ways in which Icelanders sometimes perceive their situation as unique. I think that sometimes other examples from abroad are ignored. I think that, you know, right now we are, you know, uh, you kind of begin the piece uh, with a statement by uh, Haldor Benjamin, who's been in the news again quite a lot lately, um, about the number of workers that Iceland is going to need in the future to kind of fuel the economic growth here. Um and, you know, I mean, like, I do really see there being a risk of having large communities that are just completely unintegrated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's always important to remember that those who are most at a disadvantage when that happens are, are those communities themselves. I mean, these are people that are contributing to the economy and the society, and they're not 
getting in return the support that they need to to have a good quality of life, to access you know education, resources, jobs that that are in line with their with their knowledge and their skills. So, I mean, obviously that's that's also a huge disadvantage to the country as a whole when that happens. And it's something that's, I think, really difficult to change or, or reverse once it's in place. So I think it's really important to act on the issues and the, the problems that we see within Icelandic education now because we already know and we foresee that there will just be more and more immigrants. So what we need is better infrastructure. Um, but yeah, I think there is sometimes this tendency to think, well, immigrants will come and, and work here for a short time and, and then they'll leave. But that, I mean, we just know historically, both from Iceland and, and other places, that's not usually the case. So at the time of recording, um, there are both ongoing strikes and a potential lockout, and there's a lot of tension between uh, one of Iceland's largest labor unions and SA, uh, the Confederation of Icelandic Enterprise. Um, and, you know, a lot of these same dynamics and tensions have also been talked a lot about, you know, within the labor movement. Um, and during the most recent uh, round of contract renegotiations, some of these things were also kind of at stake again. Uh, what can you kind of uh, say about how some of these Icelandic as a second language education policy concerns have kind of come up um, in this way? Uh, so the chairperson of Epling Union, uh, which is kind of at the center of all of this tension, Solvegana uh, Jonsdottir, she has uh, actually had some kind of very interesting perspectives on this issue. Uh, and when it's been brought up by immigrants themselves or like immigrant interest groups that making Icelandic language education accessible is a really key issue for immigrants and, and really key in terms of giving them access to jobs that correspond with their knowledge and their skills. Uh, she has actually spoken against that. And that could be seen as, you know, her her putting an emphasis instead on wages, just raising wages. That's been kind of her main argument. Like, we need to raise these wages and, and these... Uh, demands for Icelandic language education, she's stated that they come from the educated elite, uh, which, I mean, it, it's just not true because it actually has come from immigrants themselves and, and groups like women in Iceland, you know, immigrant interest groups. Um, they've said that they really want to make sure that in these wage negotiations that there is something done about making Icelandic language more accessible. Um, I mean, you can also argue that giving people better wages, it allows them to work less, it allows them to you know, have more free time, and, and obviously having more disposable income makes classes more accessible. Um, but again, uh, you know, the debate just sort of shows how as a society in Iceland, we haven't decided who is responsible for providing Icelandic language education. Is it the unions? Is it the government? Um is it the educated elite, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's just something we all have to sit down and, and and I think the answer is also we are all responsible. You know, we're all responsible for it on, on all sides. Like the government can do better. Um, the unions can do better. As individuals, of course, we, you know, and immigrants, we have a responsibility to learn if we can, but, you know, that it has to be accessible for us to be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
something I'm always kind of interested in, um, just kind of in the writing and research process behind the piece. Um, you know, like, was there anything that kind of interested you, though, that didn't, like, really make the cut? Uh, it's just a, this topic is a topic that's really close to my heart because I love languages. Um, I love learning languages, and I've put a lot of time and effort, you know, blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> into learning Icelandic. And, uh, you know, uh, but I am just so aware and have become so aware o- over my time in Iceland that many of these obstacles and these barriers that exist, they're really invisible to native Icelanders. And so I think we're still at a point where we need to increase awareness um, among you know, native Icelanders, among people who are in government, people who are in all kinds of positions of power, of that these barriers exist and, and exactly what they are and you know, what can be done about them. Uh, because as I kind of mentioned before, the discussion is very emotionally charged. And I think anytime we have you know, an emotionally charged discussion about, about uh, emotional issues, uh, it, it, we can sometimes kind of ignore the facts and ign- also just kind of ignore the solutions. It just becomes this kind of panic. Oh no, what if the Icelandic language disappears? Well, we, we have the tools to help it survive. We know it's going to help it survive, you know, making this education more accessible. And that's something we can do if we choose to make it a priority. So for me, that's kind of the ultimate kind of lesson from all of this. Well, thank you for that, Yelena. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.